Please turn with me in Scripture to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we'll read the whole chapter. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search continually until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. Do all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this, your word. A word that is very familiar to us, but yet unfamiliar. A word that contains a story we have heard many times. Yet, Lord, the heart of it, the heart that is conveyed, it yet eludes us. It is not something we are familiar with as we should be. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would receive this, your word, and, Lord, that we would understand it as it is meant to be in all of its fullness and power and truth. We pray, Lord, that we would benefit eternally from it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to this second half of the chapter we're in, chapter 15. As I mentioned before, the entire chapter stems from a, a single incident and Everything in it is, is really there to make a single point, an entire chapter to make a, a single point, something that's concluded with the very end of it. I'll, I'll give, give away the point of the chapter even before we begin. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. That's his point because that's not the heart of the Pharisees. That's not what they were, were feeling or speaking or acting in accordance. Because we know from the very first verse as these ta- sinners and, and tax collectors, the very worst of society, were gathering to Jesus to hear him. And in Christ was receiving them as they repented from their sins. In verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. That's their complaint. Receives sinners and eats with him. And so Jesus gives not one, not two, but three parables to refute them. And that's really, really important that you have to understand that all these things are of a piece and that they work together. Because I I hate to say it, but this parable is, is absolutely infamous uh, to be used in the history of the church, actually, by those who would teach false doctrine. It is, uh, is the, sort of the, the go-to place. People wonder, where did the liberals ever get the idea of the universal fatherhood of man, uh, fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man? You know what their proof text was? This, prodigal son. And, and that's not the only place. People who deny the penal substitutionary atonement, this one. And on and on and on they go because they are taking the parable out of its context, misusing it, not having it in according to its, its intended purpose. And so while we might be tempted to go well beyond, to, to read into it every aspect of, of true theology or our own false theology, it's not there. Right? It's interesting to look at some of these aspects as we go through it, and I'll be doing some of that as well. But we have to understand that the point of it is, is, is actually pretty simple and pretty clear. Jesus says it at the beginning, and he says it at the end. You guys are complaining. 
But you need to know it's right that we celebrate when a sinner comes home and is repentant. All right, so as I say, the parable introduced in verse 11, a certain man had two sons. Well, we began in this series of parables with um, a certain man had a hundred sheep. And then it was a woman had ten coins. We're going down a number. Now we have a man has two sons. Perhaps, though, we're moving more realistically from a situation that was so uh, objective and, and so artificial or at least re- removed from the situation at hand to which they had to nod their heads. Yes, that's true. If there was a lost sheep and the sheep was fine, I found I could see the point of someone celebrating. And the woman, she loses a coin, finds it. Yes, right. They're, they're friends and neighbors. That is right if they celebrate. And now he moves it a little bit closer to where the Pharisees actually were. Now we're talking about people, not sheep, not coins, people. Not just general people, though. Sons, precious sons. and Not, not a, millions of them, just, just two of them. And now we're going to see how close Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. It's not a different situation. The parable is just more closely approximating the situation that was actually happening before them. Real people, not possessions. And one, previously the the format, as, as you know, it involved something being lost and then something being found and the celebration that comes with it. Well, it's the same thing here. There's something lost, but, but what, what that means is sin, rebellion. So there's sin, and they're being found, found that's, that's repentance. So instead of being lost and found, and then there's celebration, there's sin, and then there's repentance, and then there's celebration. Okay, same thing. But this sermon has four points instead of three because unfortunately there's something, the fourth point, there's something that doesn't actually belong. The, the, the sin that's followed by repentance, that's good. And the repentance that is followed by celebration, that's good. And that should have been the end of the story. But there has to be something else, isn't there? In this case, it's grumbling. That's the fourth point that doesn't belong. There's grumbling in response to the celebration. We'll speak of these things. This is very simply titled, The Prodigal Son. And there are four points, sin, repentance, celebration, and grumbling. First of all, sin. Now, as I say, what happens in the other parables? There's an item that is lost. So a, a person has a perfect set, all that they're supposed to have of something, the hundred sheep, the ten coins, the two sons. And what immediately happens thereafter is that one of them is lost. And so it is here. Only this time it's described as to what the others were merely pointing to, which is sin. Verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to him his livelihood. Now, we have to be clear that he's not talking about a trust fund that was supposed to, to fall to, that was supposed to be paid out when the, the boy turned 20 or 25. He is talking about expecting, he's wanting to, uh, to have now what he's expecting to inherit when his father dies. Right? So he's saying, Father, I know you're still alive. That's kind of an inconvenience to my plans. But let's just pretend that you were dead. And if so, why don't you give me the inheritance that would otherwise come to me? Uh, now, immediately we see the heart of ingratitude, the heart of disloyalty, the heart of rebellion uh, of, of this, this boy towards his father. This is sinful. 
he has sinned against his father. And then going on in verse 13, because the, the picture of the sin just gets worse and worse. And, and I hope you understand, as we, we, we go through this, the, the Pharisees and decent people around were, were gasping in horror as this continued. This is bad enough. But in verse 13, not many days after, because he's not wasting any time, such as the cheek of this boy, his younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. And we can be pretty clear later on as we see that the citizen of that country kept pigs. Uh, that didn't happen, by the way, in, in Israel. So we can be pretty clear that we're not talking about Israel. He has left the promised land behind and is gone into some land of the pagan Gentiles under the curse of God. We're reminded of the significance of that in the book of Ruth. Reminded of the picture of someone leaving the the promised land, the place where God had promised blessing, a a land flowing with milk and honey, where all the the covenant promises resided and willingly then to leave that behind and go to the place of the cursed Gentile dogs. A place where there was not the word of God. A place where there's not the priesthood. And a place where they did not live according to the law. This is a picture of rebellion and disloyalty. Not only against his father, but against God himself. And again, the revulsion of the people around as they heard this picture of such rebellion. But that's not the end, because see, there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I guess theoretically he could have been so, uh, so rebellious and so disloyal and, and so hard-hearted to his own father in this way, and he could have stayed in Israel. But he took it the next step further, and he, and he left, and he went to some Gentile nation. I suppose theoretically there he could have lived a respectable, relatively speaking, respectable situation in this pagan land. But no, he takes it a step further and wasted his possessions there with prodigal living. Now, I want us to understand that prodigal is not a good word. Prodigal is a bad word. It's something beyond merely wasteful. It's dissolute in the worst moral kind of sense. And actually, the way it's constructed in Greek, the way it's just quite literally put together, it means someone who's beyond the possibility of salvation. Such is their lifestyle. Okay? Worst of the worst. Someone going to the worst sort of cesspool of sin that this world has to offer and simply uh, throwing themselves in to the pigsty. And as I say, the elder brother adds some colorful detail in verse 30. But as soon as a son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, and the father doesn't correct him on this point because it's true. This is absolutely the worst case scenario. Jesus couldn't have done any more to, uh, to portray sin in all of its ugliness. And I think that's a good thing, by the way, for us. Um, uh, sometimes our problem, the reason why we'd ever go down the line of the Pharisees, is that we minimize sin. We minimize our own sin, yes, but we minimize sin in general. And we reserve our, 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 the, the, the sort of rising up of our soul against things for Hitler or you know, some other worst case scenario that we've dreamed up in our mind. But rather we should make the parallel as we're doing our own sort of considerations. We should actually portray ourselves as bad as all of that. Because in the sight of God, who is so pure, so pure, he dwells in his unapproachable holiness, his eyes are a flame of fire. 
He sees your hypocrisy. He sees the sin in our hearts. He sees all the things that we might do. Indeed, were there not his good providence of a hand keeping us, he tells us our hearts as they naturally are, are, are wicked and deceitful. Who can know them? But even our righteous acts as we try to earn our salvation apart from Christ are like filthy rags in his sight. And we need to be as clear-minded when we think about sin. But anyways, this is very much a, a picture of sin, of someone giving themselves over to full-on reckless sin. And the question is, is he like his name, prodigal? Is he really beyond recall? Is he really beyond salvation? Well, the answer is no, because secondly, we have repentance. We see this, that this repentance is brought on by the discipline of providence. Verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. That's, God has a way of doing that sort of thing. A severe famine, I don't think it was any happenstance or coincidence. I think that this is the hand of God to bring discipline upon someone who is rebellious. Reminds us again of this situation of Elimelech and his family in, in, uh, in Moab. And though the providence eventually was very hard against them, and they returned for this reason. Well, in verse 15, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. Wow. Boy, it's getting worse and worse, isn't it? Um, now this, this pagan, this Gentile, is, is, is employing this man to feed the swine. Now, I need not say this was repugnant to a Jew because pigs were, of course, unclean animals. It was against the ceremonial law to have anything to do with pigs at all. And here he is keeping pigs. So in a moral sense, he has thrown himself into the pigsty when he had money and he was living the life. And now he is actually physically in the pigsty feeding these nasty animals. And they are nasty, by the way. I have a friend who... Has some had some pigs, and he was reminding uh, of, of of just how uh, terrible these these animals are. They're not nice animals like like sheep are. They're nasty. Well, verse sixteen, he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. That's pretty low. Uh, here he is feeding. He's been handed uh, this food to feed to the pigs, and his his temptation, his desire, is actually to eat eat that. But the picture of just how terrible the situation is, that though he might have been very prodigal and freely spending and throwing money left and right and center to the, the wicked people of that country, they themselves didn't return the favor, did they? No one gave him anything. We're going to talk about that a little while longer, a little bit in the application as we consider what is exactly life like in the world. Let's, what, what is the situation there? Are they, are they really such wonderful people always? Or is a situation in the world apart from Christ that people are not going to give you things? It's not the heart of the Father that we find that's so generous. The heart of Satan who rules this world is that he's not going to give you anything. But verse 17, when he came to himself, because again a point here is about repentance. When he came to himself, when the cold water of reality hit his face, and he woke up and realized where he was, what he was doing. And all of a sudden, his, his hopes and ambitions for a life of glamour 
I've hit rock bottom. Now, now he comes to himself. And he said, Many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, let me just say, this is a picture of true repentance. All right? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He puts that even first. He includes it, yes, but he puts it first. He recognizes he has offended his father, but... That's not the the first thing out of his mouth is even as he's considering these things in his mind. He realized that he sinned against God. That's just like King David. When when King David did about the worst thing sort of imaginable and is a picture forever to us of the horrible sin that even believers can at times fall into. And when he came to true repentance, he says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned. Against God, and, and you, there's a psalm where he explains, Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, in some sense, not, it's not true. He obviously sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He obviously sinned against Bathsheba. He obviously sinned against his own family. He obviously sinned against his own nation, which was going to suffer because of his sin. But actually, all of those things pale in comparison when a, true, when a sinner is brought to real repentance, the kind of repentance that, that leads to salvation. He realizes that the, the heart of the matter is he sinned against a holy God. That's his situation. Not merely as a bad son that's offended his father and is alienated from him, but as one who has sinned against a living God. And that's the, the basis upon his repentance. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, because that's right as well. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, here I just have to say, if this was really a picture of how people understand the gospel, this would have said something different. Okay, Because not just here, but later on when he actually comes, these are the same, you know, this is the idea that, that, that is in his mind. Okay, His mind, his idea is not to return as a son because he really understands the father's grace, but because he just wants to be like a hired son. He wants to earn his keep. Okay? He doesn't really, in that sense, we can't press the details of the parable too far. So we have, one, in one case, a very wonderful picture of, of true repentance. But we don't have such a clear picture of someone understanding the grace of the gospel. So we'll just leave it there. But just don't press the details too far. All right, so he rose and came to his father. It's not just merely a thought or intention. This was reality. It's not just a good idea that maybe one day I'll get around to getting back to my family. He actually did it. He actually repented of these things. He's left that life of debauchery in the pagan land behind, and he's returned to his father. This is repentance. This is what it is. He was lost. Now he's found. He's, he's come to himself, and he's come to his own land again. So thirdly, what do we have? We had... Before, there was something lost. Now there's something found. And then we have a celebration. Well, that's our third point, celebration. And he rose and came to his father. And when he was still away, a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now we do have to consider the grace of his father. We do. It is 
the, the, the picture here couldn't be any more amazing. Where to begin? This son had disgraced him. He had, and beyond that, he had made his choice. Right? He had already, the father had already done more than what was fair by granting him his inheritance in advance. He could have just said, no, of course I'm not going to do that. But he went bent over backwards to, to please the son in the first place, and he gave him the inheritance. Well, I can tell you his obligations were certainly fulfilled. There was nothing more that the son deserved in terms of justice. Actually, the son did deserve something, but that was punishment. That was disdain. That was disowning. But the father chose to act not in terms of justice, but in terms of marvelous, wonderful, abundant grace. Now, I want us to see that this abundant grace that the father is, is showing to this son, it was not a coldly calculated proposition. Notice the way it is depicted. His father saw him, and had compassion. It's the very same word we've seen other places in the Gospels. When, when Jesus looks at the, the people there who are like sheep having no shepherd, don't forget the parallels, like sheep having no shepherd, what, what happens to Jesus? Does he pull out the calculator and figure out how much the sheep are going to benefit him? What happens to him? He's moved with compassion. These sheep having no shepherd. He's moved with compassion to them. And so this father looks at this lost son, hell deserving, wrath deserving, sinner that he might be. He's moved with compassion. He's his son. This, this son of his is returning, and it is the heart of a kind and loving father. To be moved with compassion. And of course that's demonstrated then in his falling on his neck and kissing him. This great sign of loving affection to a close family member. And of course it continues in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's very true, indeed, that being a son had to do with worth, had to do with earning, then he'd be very true. He, he's, he's not worthy to be called the son. But of course, that's not really the nature of sonship, is it? And here I think we do learn something about the doctrine of adoption. I think there is some legitimate parallels to remind us of what that's like. There's something called the doctrine of adoption, in which we are not just to be made sort of like customers of the Lord, that we come in our faith and he hands us a ticket to heaven, is a little bit more involved than that, actually. It's that when we come to him in true repentance and faith, we are welcome into the eternal family of the living God, and that we are made to be sons and daughters of God. And, and so... The, the, the scripture it abounds in these, the New Testament speaks of the amazing thing. And in fact, we say, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. It's a marvelous and amazing thing, that we should be made the sons and daughters of God. But you know what? If you are a son, then you understand that the nature has nothing to do with 
with, with earning that, of earning your keep, it's not like that. The reality is that you're a son or daughter. Well, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his hand and sandal on his feet. Because the father has no intention of treating him like anything but a son. There is no other category for him to be dealt with. And he is showing the world that the son has returned. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat. Be merry. Now listen to the rationale that he gives in verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now I want us to see that in all the other the other the, the other two parables, there was a certain cost involved in recovering the son. Okay? Now the sheep I think the shepherd could well have wished that the the sheep had never gone missing in the first place. The sheep caused him some trouble. The sheep caused him difficulty in having gone off to a far place. and, And then the shepherd having to leave the others where they were out in the wilderness... To go find that sheep and then put it on his shoulders and and bring it home. There was cost involved in the recovery of something that was precious. And likewise, the woman had to stop what she was doing. Had to light a lamp. She had to sweep the house. Spend her time looking for this coin. And there's cost here. Here here this... This, this father has lost all this money that was the inheritance of the son. And now he's putting on this celebration. But it doesn't matter. Because the, the real important thing, the valuable thing here, was not the time. In this case, it's not the money. It's the son, you see. Because God ultimately isn't concerned about sheep, is he? He's not really concerned about coins either. That's not, these are just pictures. These are just parallels. His treasure, the thing that he really cares about, the thing that he stores up and keeps account, close accounts of, the thing that is so valuable that, that, that the father would be willing to send his son to die, not just, not just come and to recover the sheep and take a little bit of time doing, but to lay down his life, an atoning sacrifice for us, was us, people, his people cares a lot about us and what he says my son was dead and is alive again was lost and is found and that is why he wants to celebrate and they began to be merry that's the whole point he said it before right verse 7 I tell you likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance so far is the father from being reluctant to receive a, 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 uh, a repentant sinner. And, and imagine saying, oh, you know, I was glad that he was gone. That, that son, he wasn't worth much to me. All we, caused all this trouble and now he's come crawling back to me. No. No, because you see... He, we are more value in his sight than we are in our own sight. Maybe this prodigal son saw so little of his worth 
that he was willing to throw himself away in the pigsty of Las Vegas and thereafter in the physical pigsty? Maybe that's what he thought of himself. And maybe his older brothers are going to see he doesn't think much of this son. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is that these, his people, his blood-bought sinners, they are really precious to him. And he wants to celebrate. Well, it's time to celebrate. But unfortunately, we do have that, that fourth. And, and let me just say, it was a, it was a good, it was a wholehearted celebration. You, you see it, right? You understand the best robe, not, not the second robe, the best robe, the gold ring, and the fatted calf. And they began to be merry. Okay, so it was, it was the whole nine yards, the whole part of it, it was a wholehearted celebration. Any, any means by which they had to celebrate, they employed it. All right? But then fourthly, there's this, this point that doesn't really belong, which is grumbling. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now, do you think that's really true? Lo, these many years I've been serving you and I never transgressed your commandment at any time? You know, some people take this as face value and say, yeah, well, I guess this, this, this son was absolutely sinlessly perfect and that he'd kept the entire law of God flawlessly and yet somehow was still alienated from the Father. Well, of course, it isn't true because the Word of God makes it very clear that all people sin. And if he, if, he was, if he kept every commandment of the Father, let's say that, that he was the very first to ever do that. No, and, and said, this is the heart of one who's just not very conscious of their sin, has forgotten about their sin, doesn't think that they have much that needs forgiving. It's like the, the Pharisee Simon, you remember that? He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Say on, teacher. He goes on to explain one who had been forgiven much compared to one who had been forgiven little. And the one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. This is the situation here. This older son who apparently didn't think he had much to be forgiven of. He's not very conscious of his sin. He goes on in verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots... You killed a fatted calf for him. Now, you understand what he's saying. He is, he's not just making a little observation, innocent little observation. He is accusing his father of acting unjustly. He is making an accusation against his father. If he had never sinned against his father before, guess what? Now he's sinning against the father. Right here now, he is accusing him of acting unjustly towards him. And listen to the response of the father. Again, the response of the father at this point could have well have been, if he could have, instead of running to meet him, could have been to put up a get lost sign. You made your choice, now live with it. At this point, he could have well have said, okay, now you're uh, the problem. 
And uh, you're, you're right. You're, you're not invited to this party. You just go back to work because that's where you need to be. And uh, if, if you don't want to join us in our celebration, well, I'll find other uses uh, for your inheritance. But listen to the response of the father. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now look, again, if the Pharisees were really lost, then people immediately assume that Jesus is speaking of those who are absolutely lost or not believers at all. If Jesus had been wanting to make that that clear in this parable, he certainly didn't do so, okay? Because this language here, son, you are always with me. Son, speaking to the one, the older brother who is identified with the Pharisees, he's calling him son. You are always with me and all that I have is yours. He's not making it very clear that the Pharisees are lost, at least not in this particular parable, because that's not his point. The point doesn't really, in the end, have to do with that issue at all. It has to do with the heart that they have that is so wrong. It's so incongruous. It's so out of accord with the heart of God towards these repentant sinners. The point is that those who need no repentance should not complain when Jesus celebrates with those who have repented. The 99 sheep who are there in the pasture do not need to grumble that their, their shepherd left them for a moment to go get one that was lost. They don't need to grumble and say, it's his fault that he was lost. He should have stayed lost. Why are we celebrating? No, because that's not the heart of God at all. So, I hate to say it, but really that was the point. The point of the whole, of the prodigal son, the point of the other two parables, the point of Luke chapter 15 is a rebuke against the hard-hearted people. The hard-hearted people of God who do not share their Heavenly Father's joy at one who repents. Now, of course, there's some applications here. So many things that we could say, but let's just say, take them maybe in the order of time, the way that things progressed here in this, in this parable. And the first application, and particularly to the young people and to the children, I would say don't be too quick to be, quote, free. And, and you know what I mean when I say free, because sometimes being freedom as we think of it is not real freedom. Does living in a pigsty sound like wonderful freedom to you? Obviously not. But what I want to say is don't be too quick to want to be, because that's the prodigal's first mistake, was thinking that life under his father's rightful authority was so terrible. Was that really the way that the story ended? Of course not. Life under lawful authority that God has given is not so terrible, actually. And though he in his ingratitude, he and in his foolishness wanted to think that it was such and wanted to think that life in the world was going to be such a wonderful improvement, he was soon enough to be proved wrong. And he, was, he would have been glad just to have been back at the Father's house as a hired servant. Covenant children... Again, children, young people, you have it good. Okay? You don't know this, unfortunately. You're not sufficiently conscious of it. 
because God has been so good to you, you don't know what it's like in the world. I know what it's like. It's not good. Will you trust me? Will you believe me? Will you believe the word of God to know that life out there, apart from lawful authority, out from the, the, the scope of the things that God has given for your goodness or for your blessing, it's not as good as you're thinking? Because I know the temptations of Satan. I know the temptations of youth to want to go prodigal. Don't be too quick to imagine that there's a wonderful life out there. That life ends in a physical and spiritual and every other way pigsty. And one day, one way or another, you will be known, you will know the goodness of God in giving you what He's given in a good Christian home. Secondly, I, say, I, I would say beyond just this idea of don't be too quick to be free, let's be a little bit more realistic about life in this world because we need to be. All right, what was the problem with the children of Israel anyways? It wasn't just once. What was the problem with the children of Israel? Why They wanted to go back to Egypt, right? Because they, they kept harboring these unrealistic thoughts about Egypt. We said this before. I, I'm sorry for repeating myself. But they kept remembering the leeks and the onions, didn't they? It was so wonderful there in Egypt. Boy, didn't we have a good. And that's why they wanted to go back. Well, let's be realistic about life in the world, okay? Now, notice he said, I don't want to press the points too far, but I couldn't help myself in this one. He joined himself to a citizen of that country, okay? Now, as I say, he's not a citizen. He's gone to a place where he's not a citizen, but he's joined himself to a citizen of that country. And who's running that country, of course? Well, Satan, all right? This is the world. This is the pagan, unbelieving world. And the citizens, they all belong to Satan, and what can we say that that country is characterized by? Well, the entrance into that country is characterized by the harlots and the fast living. Okay, That's the way you get somebody into that country in the first place. Because that's what's on display. That's what the adverts say. And, and, and it's going to be the pleasures of sin for a season and it will be great. That lasts about one verse, right? Because then what happens? Famine. Starvation. And particularly, hard labor without reward. Because what happens in that country? The citizens of that country, the situation of that country, under their master, what is it? No one gives you anything. So the promise up front is a life of great pleasure. The reality is that no one gives you anything. Because Satan is the absolute opposite of the good and gracious Heavenly Father that we belong to. This father is so gracious and giving so abundantly to people who don't deserve it. Satan lies to us because he wants to kill us. He has nothing to give, by the way, in the end anyways. Okay? He doesn't have anything of worth to give. He's got a big show, but nothing of lasting worth is in his possession. So he couldn't give it to you even if he wanted. What is he? I mean, he's, a, he's a condemned felon. He's about to be... He's about to be put in the worst kind of eternal life sentence, death sentence. He has nothing to give, but if he did, he wouldn't give it to you. Nothing gave, nobody gave him anything. Hard labor without reward. 
Now, this is so opposite, then, to the situation of the promised land, the, the situation on the father's estate. And let's be clear about that distinction as well. That's life in the world, but life on the father's estate is pretty good. Okay? Filthy sinners show up, and they are handed a robe. Right? They don't deserve that robe. It's a robe of righteousness. Christ won for them on the cross. You couldn't have much of a celebration, you know, in heaven. Were you to be in the filthy rags that you show up in, that you belong to you, that are properly yours? You wouldn't be welcome there. You don't have a wedding garment. Those who have put their faith in Christ, they receive this wonderful, beautiful wedding garment, the very best one that Christ shed blood could afford for you at infinite cost. There it's put upon you, though you may not deserve it at all. And inside you, you, you know, again, the picture is one who couldn't be less worthy of these things. And inherently in themselves are dirty, nasty sinners. I don't know about you, but sometimes I even think about that. Now, surely he's going to have to take a bath before he puts on this nice robe, right? That's not the picture that, that, that at least comes across in the parable. It's, it's one who is not intrinsically clean but rather who is, is given, is imputed this righteousness, is put over him and made to be acceptable and given that golden ring. This is the situation of life on the father's estate. Okay, so we, we need to be realistic about our situation, the love, what is there in the world and what is here. Thirdly, of course, Repent and believe, of course. If you're one of these, if you're a lost sheep, if you're a lost coin, if you're a lost son, please just repent. We said before, is there a situation in which you're, you're too lost to be found? Is there a situation, is there a way in which a sheep has gone too far? Well, maybe the angels in heaven are constantly looking to see if maybe that's the case. But they they keep getting proved wrong. They keep getting proved just how wonderful this shepherd is, that no one is beyond salvation in this way. Even one whose life was a sotos, outside the possibility of salvation in ordinary reckoning. Well, if that's your case, if, if if the, the world has in fact disappointed you, and we know that it has, And why not come to your heavenly Father in true repentance? I have sinned against heaven, against you. And embrace the salvation, the free offer that is in Christ Jesus. And merely for the asking, merely for the embracing, the Father embraces you because of what Christ has done on the cross. Surely we must repent and believe fourthly I would say that Christians need to check your own heart you need to check your heart over time as God in his goodness makes us a little bit better than we used to be because that's part of the gospel sanctification we're made a little bit better maybe we've begun to start thinking of ourselves better than we really are we've forgotten where we came from and I, I hope not, but maybe we begin to think of, of repentant sinners as, you know, he's only crawling back because he's starving and has no place to go. He's hit rock bottom, and now he's come crawling back. 
Well, if that's your heart, congratulations, um, you're a Pharisee. Because that's the situation of the Pharisees towards Jesus' celebration of repentant sinners. Okay? That doesn't need to be our heart. There's no indication, by the way, of that of the Father. You know, the Father seems to be oblivious to the fact that the Son didn't just come. You know, he, he, he was on his way to the far country and says, this is crazy, and I'll, I'll head back. The, 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 the son had to reach rock bottom before he would do anything. And he, in essence, had no other option. He was starving there. But the, the father isn't quite so critical, actually. The father receives him back just, just because he's back. And I think that we need to make sure that our hearts are in accordance with that. Check your own heart lest we begin to resemble that of a Pharisee more than we resemble Christ himself. And fifthly and finally, I know the the sermon is a little longer this morning, but I had to add this. Rightful celebration is good. Rightful celebration is good. I wanted to bring this up because I recently heard a talk somewhere that went a little bit too far on this issue and went well beyond the scriptural balance of the way that we deal with things in the world. But the only reason why he he went that far, he had the traction to go that far, is because there are some times and places in good churches where maybe we, 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 we say too much with regard to the good things of God that he gives in this life. Okay, We don't want to say too much against them. If they're a good gift of God, then we should receive them with thanksgiving, absolutely. And mainly in this text, we're reminded that there are occasions to celebrate. Okay? Good occasion. And you know what? The only ones who don't want to be part of that celebration are those who think the event is not worth celebrating. Those who themselves are hard-hearted. Okay? So not only are there right occasions to celebrate, but it, it is right for God's people to join in. Now, I don't know if you caught it. I, I didn't the first time. It was only recent, recently, and I, I kind of looked up. And you realize that Jesus is saying something about music and dancing. Did you notice that? There's music and dancing going on in this celebration. It's on the lips of Jesus Christ himself. And he's not speaking against it. The only one he's speaking against is the one who refuses to join in. Wow. Now, am I saying that music that's inherently sinful in its lyrics, that that's good? Certainly not. Certainly not. Do you think a good father was going to be playing that sort of music? I don't think so. Music that incites people to sin? Certainly not. But not all music fits into one of those categories. Unfortunately, most that you hear today do. But not all. Dancing that is immodest? Certainly not. Among the things that our catechism enumerates as being violations of the seventh commandment are lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, and stage plays. Okay? Any of those things that could be characterized as lascivious, as somebody in the cold light of day sitting down and watching it, observing, listening to these things would say they're lascivious. These are violations of the seventh commandment. We should have nothing to do with it. But not all dancing is necessarily lascivious or immodest. Okay? And, uh, you know, those are the sort of things a prodigal indulge in the far land. That's not the thing that happens on the father's estate. What sort of things might be celebrations? Well, of course, the primary example we'd have are weddings. 
It's a biblical example as well. You know, Jesus went to that, that wedding feast in Cana, right? He joined in that celebration. He was not like that older son who stood with his arms crossed when people were celebrating for good things, okay? Now, partying, I want to I say that celebration is a good thing. Partying, when there is nothing to celebrate, is not, okay? Different things. Going to a wedding where there is music and dancing and feasting and all the rest of it and participating, very good because there's something to celebrate. If one of us, for instance, has, maybe there's a parent here that has a prodigal son. That son never returns. Here's my suggestion. Let's have a celebration. Let's have music. Let's have dancing. The only people who won't join in on that day are the ones who don't share the, the, the heart of their Heavenly Father. But empty partying for no purpose, that's what the world does. It's not something to be joined in. It's a party without a heart. It's rotten, you know. It didn't happen every day that they did this. They killed the fatted calf. They had something prepared for a special occasion. They killed that fatted calf. It didn't happen every Friday. There are celebrations that are special enough that are worthwhile for us to celebrate. And you know, one day, that's, all these things are just a pale reflection of what's going to happen in heaven. Because you know, that's the ultimate, isn't it? All the things that ever happen on earth, every kind of celebration there might be, the greatest wedding that there's ever been, is a pale reflection of what happens in the wedding feast of heaven. And I hope we all join in to the celebration on that day. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is impossible to do your word justice. It is impossible to preach it as it should be or to receive it in its fullness. But Lord, how we pray that you'd enable us to grasp hold of a few basic things, things that need to be remembered. And Lord Jesus himself gave not one, not two, but three parables. And the Holy Spirit gave this whole chapter of Scripture we might understand that it is right to celebrate when repentant sinners come to, to repentance and faith and they return to the Father's house. We know that this is the heart of the Father towards those who come. And he's not going to cast anyone out who comes to him through Christ. And Lord, rather that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would have this sort of heart, that we would share, that we would have this similarity to our, our Heavenly Father, and that, Lord, you would indeed bring people to repentance. You would bring prodigal sons home, and that we'd have reasons to celebrate. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.